0: Our Bibles are open to Paul's letter to the Galatians, the primary letter of the Apostle Paul that deals with the subject and our theme of these past many weeks, the essential gospel, Galatians chapter number 5. If you need a pew Bible, there's one in front of you, and we're on page 916 this morning. I'm going to talk with you for a few minutes today as we continue to unpack the theme of this second part of Paul's letter to the Galatians, namely, freedom in Christ, I'm going to talk with you for a little bit this morning about the subject, the Freedom Walk. Several years ago, my son Seth and I were in Boston, Massachusetts for a few days, and one of the things that we wanted to do while we were there was to walk the two-and-a-half-mile serpentine trail that runs through the greater part of the inner city of Boston, Massachusetts, known as the Freedom Trail. Anybody here walked the Freedom Trail before on your visit? Yeah, several of you have. It's a a two-and-a-half-mile journey that starts at the Boston Common, which is the big green park there in the heart of Boston, and it ultimately takes you to the Bunker Hill Monument, so you kind of go a little bit uphill along the way. The Bunker Hill Monument is kind of a miniature version of the Washington Monument. It's an obelisk, not quite as tall, and you can walk to the top of it, something like 360 steps. And don't you know I felt it the next day? I sure did. But we went all the way to the top. And it's a wonderful uh, time of just seeing all of these incredible historical places. You move from the Boston Common and you end up at the Old South Meeting House where many of the great historic town halls in the early revolutionary period took place. You also pass by the old North Church, where Paul Revere's lantern, of course, was made famous. The Freedom Trail takes you by the old Boston State House, which is probably most notable because that's the location where the Boston Massacre took place, right in front of it, there in what is now downtown Boston, Massachusetts. As you continue walking down the Freedom Trail, you come to the home of Paul Revere, one of the oldest freestanding homes still in existence in the United States of America, and you can walk all the way through it, up and down both floors. In fact, you pass not far from there, the old Granary Burial Grounds, where Paul Revere is indeed buried. And you can linger for a few minutes at the gravesite of Paul Revere and the graveside of... John Hancock, whose very large signature was over-accentuated on the Declaration of Independence so that the, the very far-sighted King George III would not miss his name as he read the document. Eventually, you'll find your way, too, to the uh, Boston Navy Yard, where the oldest commissioned warship in the United States fleet. The United States-ship Constitution is still docked, and that makes for a wonderful tour, old Ironsides. It's only two and a half miles, the Freedom Trail. But it took Seth Locke and I two full 10-hour days to walk it because we stopped at every stop, went into every exhibit, lingered there for a little while. And by the time we finished that, we were still hearing the early American patriots shouting at the top of their lungs, let freedom ring. Can you say that together with me? Let freedom ring. That's kind of what the Apostle Paul is saying here in the last part of his letter to the Galatians. Paul, of course, uh, begins uh, this wonderful letter in the first four chapters, digging deep into the doctrinal theological foundation of our faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, that's exactly what he talks about. The first four chapters are chapters that deal with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, faith particularly as the foundation of our salvation. We are saved not by works, not by human achievement, not by human performance. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone plus nothing else. As he makes a turn, as he so often does in his letters, to the last two chapters, he wants to help us understand how to take that rich theological truth that he's just spent all that time developing and unpacking, how to take that rich doctrinal truth and apply it practically to our everyday lives. Paul was, in that sense, a very modern preacher, if I could say it that way. Because most modern audiences are not interested in platitudes. They want to know, how do I live it? How is it real in my life? How is this applicable to decisions that I make every day in my life? Well, Paul understood that 2,000 years ago and himself made those applications, at least in part, for his readers. And that's what he's doing here. He has moved from a deep-seated theology about faith in Christ being the foundation of who we are as a people, now to a subject about freedom in Christ, how to live as the free people that we are. Pastor Eric Mitchell introduced this theme last week in his message, Free at Last, and Galatians 5.1 is Paul's let freedom ring moment, for he says there, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And today, we're going to continue in that theme, addressing not so much the freedom trail, but the freedom walk. What does this life of freedom look like? And how is it accomplished, practically speaking, in the life of of those of us who are disciples of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's going to be our subject not only today, but also next Sunday as well as we kind of wrap this theme up of Galatians chapter 5. And it has everything to do, this successful freedom walk in the Lord has everything to do with our dependence on the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. So don't miss the Holy Spirit as we read our text this morning And don't miss the critical role of the Holy Spirit when it comes to living as free people saved by faith, through grace, plus nothing else. Let's take a look this morning, beginning in Galatians 5, and the 13th verse, we'll read verses 13 through 18, and is everybody ready to read? Would you say amen this morning? This is the Word of God. For you were called to freedom, brothers— The desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Father, in Jesus' name, we come before the holiness and the grandeur and the majesty of your presence this morning, and we very humbly beseech you by the Holy Spirit of God to speak to every person's heart today. Lord, we want to live free. We want to walk by the Spirit. If we've been born again, we really have no desire to gratify the lust or the desires of the flesh. We want to look like new people in Jesus Christ not like the old people we were before we met the Lord. And so toward that end, Father, teach us what freedom is and teach us how to live in it because our great desire is to make much of Jesus by how we live every day for him. And it's in his wonderful name we pray and all God's people said, amen and amen. Well, this is a passage that obviously focuses, could you tell, on the presence, the power, and the work of the Holy Spirit of God. How many have ever heard it said out in your community or people you run in circles with? Well, the thing about Baptists is they don't believe in the Holy Spirit. They got a Greek word for that, poppycock. Now, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We're all about the Holy Spirit. We got to have the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do what? You can do nothing. We're totally dependent on the Holy Spirit. You can't live in freedom apart from the Holy Spirit. We just read that here. And so, this statement about walking in the Spirit and living in freedom has everything to do with the presence and the power and the sensitivity of every believer toward the Holy Spirit of God. The Bible's made it very clear. In fact, Paul is basically reprising this theme of the Holy Spirit. He mentioned it briefly at the beginning of chapter three, if you might remember. He reminded them was it by the works of the flesh that you received the Holy Spirit, or was it by faith that you received the Holy Spirit? but he assumed that those followers of Jesus in Galatia had indeed received the Holy Spirit once they trusted Jesus Christ to save them. And so that obviously is a key truth of the New Testament, the fact that if we're born again believers, we have the presence of the Lord Jesus inside of us, and the presence of the Lord Jesus inside of us is fundamentally the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, who baptizes every believer once they confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and then comes to live and reside inside every believer who's trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Romans 8, also written by the Apostle Paul, look at Romans 8, 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. If Baptists don't believe in the Holy Spirit, we're all lost and headed for hell because anybody who does not have the Spirit does not belong to Christ. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. How do I know if I'm a child of the living God? Do you have the Holy Spirit living within you? That's the first and fundamental great test. And so Paul clarifies that we are free people here, and he tells us how we can know that we're free people. The indwelling Holy Spirit of God inside the life of every genuine born-again believer plays the crucial role, the crucial role, in living Christian freedom openly and boldly for the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's going to elaborate on our Christian freedom three ways here. I want you to write them down if you're a note taker this morning. The first thing we're going to notice is simply this, by the Spirit, we are free from sin. The Holy Spirit and His presence. Listen, if you've got the presence of God living on the inside of you by the Holy Spirit, who is absolutely holy, absolutely. Listen, there's a reason they call Him the Holy Spirit. Can I have an amen this morning? You've got the Holy Spirit living on the inside of you. You are not going to be able to sin and get away with it anymore. You're going to loathe it. You're going to hate it. You're going to know it instantly when you do it. And the first impulse of your life is to be driven back to Jesus Christ for confession of sin, repentance, and restoration. By the Holy Spirit, we are free from sin. That doesn't mean we won't ever sin again. We're fallen. We're still broken. We're still fallible. We're still not yet in heaven. And so we are very likely going to sin, not once, not twice, but probably many, many times. But you're going to know it when you do. Adrian Rogers used to say, the unbeliever leaps into sin and loves it. The saved laps into sin and loathes it. Amen. That sounds just like Adrian Rogers, doesn't it? That's the key difference between the two. It's not that neither completely are free from sin, but we're free from the power of sin. We're free from the love of sin. We're free from the, from the penalty of sin. And the indwelling Holy Spirit is what makes that happen. There are two great threats to Christian freedom. Eric mentioned these by way of introduction last week. They're the two dreaded L words. The first is legalism. And we talked about legalism in the very first message of this series. Legalism, of course, is something we all struggle with. Some of y'all are still struggling with it, frankly, even today. And legalism basically says that you're accepted by God and you're accepted by others in the community of faith based on your faithfulness to the adherence of some kind of moral code. So you have to do a lot of stuff in order to get God to accept you and you have to keep the rules religiously. That's what we mean by legalism. Break a rule and you're in big time trouble, break it enough and you're probably gonna get kicked out, right? Legalism. And then the other barrier to Christian freedom is what we call license. And it's an equally great threat. By license, I simply mean the attitude on the part of a born again believer that basically says, I'm saved, I'm safe, therefore I can sin. I'm saved, I'm saved. I'm saved, I'm safe, therefore I can sin. In other words, because I'm now under the grace of God and because the Bible says where my sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, there's no way that I can outsend the grace of God, so I might as well just live it up with impunity, right? I can do whatever I want, and I'm safe in the arms of God. I've got my get-out-of-jail-free card. Doesn't really matter how I live. But you all know as well as I do, the Bible teaches no such thing How many of you have ever heard it also said about Baptists? Well, they believe down there at that Baptist church, once saved, always saved. Now, all in the world that is is a license to sin. That's just license to live however you need any such thing. I'm going to make a very bold and important statement here that you need to hear more than anything else I say today. Are you all listening? Amen. There's no such thing as a license to sin. It does not exist. Paul says in His letter to the Romans, chapter 6, verse 1 What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? In other words, now that I'm saved, am I free to sin? Am I free to sin carelessly? Am I free to sin casually? Am I free to sin willfully? Even intentionally, because I know that where sin abounds, God will forgive because his grace abounds all the more. Paul asked the question rhetorically Is that what that means? And he answers the question in the King James Bible, God forbid. In most modern translations, it says something like, by no means, absolutely not. It's a double negative, which makes it emphatic negation. No, not ever is one way we might translate it. And so his point there is that Christ didn't die so that we could continue to live like the devil. Christ didn't die so that we could continue to live any old way that we want to live. That's the way lost people live. Lost people live by impulse. Lost people live by feelings. Lost people live by the gut. But saved people don't. Saved people live by the Spirit of God. Christ has freed us from all of that. That's what we're free from. We're freed from the bondage of sin. We're freed from the love of sin. Christ has set us free in order that we might now accomplish Our primary purpose, which is what? Why are we here? Why do we live? To make much of Jesus, that's what. Your life's not about you anymore. It's not about you. It's about your life reflecting the glory of Christ in a lost world so that others might see the holiness of the Lord in you and in me. Listen, going out and living like you want to live and using whatever philosophy you do to justify that is presuming upon the grace of God. That's presumption. That's that's a person wanting to remain in the driver's seat of their life. When faith requires that you move over to the passenger side and you let the Lord Jesus command the ship of state. Now, the problem with a lot of people today is they want to confess Jesus is Lord with their lips but then live like they are. And the Bible knows nothing of that. No, our our consistency in glorifying Jesus as supreme Lord of our life can be done in a believer's life, even this side of heaven. And it has everything to do with the Holy Spirit who's alive in us. Now, we've already seen how authentic children of God have all received the Holy Spirit. You get that when you're born again. Confess Christ as Savior and Lord, and there's an immediate, what theologians call, baptism of the Holy Spirit, where the Spirit fills your life, indwells your life, seals your life. You become a child of God for the rest of eternity. But the Spirit moves into your life principally as guide. This is what Jesus was teaching his disciples about in the upper room, John 14:15 and 16, the night before he died. I'm going away, but this is an advantage to you, Jesus told those disciples. Well, how can your going away be an advantage to us? We've given up everything to follow you. And he said, well, if I don't go, the Holy Spirit cannot what? That's right, the Holy Spirit can't come if I don't go. And it's a better deal for me to go so that He can come because while you can be with me, the Holy Spirit is advantageous to you because the Holy Spirit can now be in you. There are times, Jesus said, where I could separate myself from you when He was with His disciples, He could go up to the hills to pray and they'd be without Him for a period of time. But once the Spirit of God moves in your life, you're never separated from God. Never for a nanosecond. Isn't that an encouraging thought this morning? As a child of God, I'm never... Listen, my children were separated from me. Busy pastor, off to meetings, off to conventions, off to visit... Folks in their home, off to hospitals. There were lots of times my kids were separated from me. But I'm just here to say this morning, there's never a time that a child of God is ever separated from his or her heavenly father, not for a nanosecond. The reason that's true is because he's moved in. And because he's moved in, here's the thing, you can't sin and get away with it anymore. If you sin and love it, something's not right. Something's wrong in River City, as the music man used to say. We got trouble in River City. No, you won't be able. You'll know it when you sin because the presence of the Holy Spirit has freed us from sin. And that's how you glorify God. You recognize that first of all. We've received the Holy Spirit. But then that being true, Paul makes a critical statement in Galatians 5.16. Here it is. One of the most important statements in the whole letter. Scripture memory quality right here. But I say walk by the spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. I don't necessarily propose people get tattoos, but if you're going to get one, get that one tattooed on your forehead. (laughs) This is how you live in victory right here. Walk by the spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Two key words there. The first is the word flesh. That doesn't refer to human body the way Paul is using it here, though it can refer to the human body, and frankly, it probably does eventually get around back to the real flesh of our bodies. Because most of the time when you sin, it usually involves the body in some way, whether the physical or the mind or some part of your body. But Paul is using it here to describe the you you used to be before you met Jesus Christ. The term flesh can be used in a spiritual sense in the New Testament. In fact, it probably is used more in the spiritual sense than in the physical sense in the New Testament. It refers to the, to the sinful nature that we used to live by. See, before you met the Lord, life was all about you. You were the king or queen of the universe. You called all the shots. You were in the driver's seat. You lived for you. You did what felt right at the time, right? You called the shots. You were Lord of your life. That's the sinful nature acting. But see, we've been delivered from that. Now, it's still hanging around. You say, well, what do you mean it's still hanging? Well, what do you think the devil appeals to when he tempts you? The sinful nature never dies this side of heaven because if it did, you'd be free from temptation. Now, the devil's got to have something to appeal to. Isn't that right? And what does he appeal to? The old you that's dead technically but still lurking because we're kind of in a transition period between what Christ did for us and what will finally be done when Christ comes again. And in the intermediate period, we still battle with the flesh, those old desires. That's why the devil tries to make a mess of your life. But there's a way out of that. The process of Christian growth is what we call sanctification And sanctification is spearheaded by the Spirit who lives within you. We call it at Hillcrest becoming like Christ, the process of growing so that we look more and more like Jesus Christ with every passing day, with every passing week, with every passing year. And sanctification, that process of becoming like Christ, is predicated on you and I learning to walk by the Spirit of God. That's how it happens. This is is why it's given as a command here. Jesus, I mean, Paul doesn't say to the believers in South Galatia, and by extension to us, he doesn't say, you know what, it'd be a great idea if you started walking by the Spirit. No, he says, do it. Walk by the Spirit. It's the only way. It's the only way to live in freedom. It's the only way to look like Jesus. It's the only way to live conquering sin. Walk by the Spirit. Otherwise, you'll tend to drift back to a life that's all about you. See, possessing the Spirit's automatic. You don't have to do anything to receive the Holy Spirit. Just trust Jesus. The leading of the Holy Spirit is a given. You don't have to do anything for the Holy Spirit to lead you, He's in you. He's going to lead. The question is, you going to listen? The Holy Spirit will lead. The question is, will you listen and will you walk? Will you walk His way? That's a decision that you and I have to make. And the way we do that, I'm going to talk a little more about this last week, but the way we do, you've got to be sensitive. You've got to pray. You've got to stay in the Word. You've got to gather with your church, listen to the preaching of the Bible, connect in a small group where you can talk about the Bible, have, this, have the Word of God soaking inside of you, saturating your life, and you listen to the Spirit, you commune with the Spirit. And you follow the Spirit's prompting. How many of you have ever, you've ever felt the Spirit of God prompt you and you knew it was all God? Man, that happens all the time to a believer who's walking in the Spirit. The Spirit's going to lead you. He'll tell you what to do, tell you what not to do. The question is, we've got to walk by the Spirit. And we're not always 100% here. Listen, your pastor's not always 100% here. But the point of discipleship is to become so attuned to the promptings of the Holy Spirit that sin becomes as alien to your life as night is today. Pastor, do you believe it's possible for a believer not to sin? I do. Now, I don't think it's very likely because the world is awful broken and we're still awful fallible. But I'm just saying if sin has been defeated and the Spirit of God is in my life and the Spirit is leading me and prompting me away from sin, I have the capacity not to sin. Now, before I was saved, I was not free not to sin. Does that make sense? An unbeliever is going to sin. An unbeliever has no choice but to sin. But a believer is different. A believer is now free not to sin, and that's one of the big differences between a believer and an unbeliever. And the only way to do that is to 100% consistently do what Paul says here in the form of this imperative, walk by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. That's the promise, and it can happen if we stay attuned to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. In every moment, every day, walk by the Spirit. Everybody with me so far? By the Spirit, we are free from sin. And I've used almost a whole sermon talking about that one thing, so let me put it into fourth gear this morning. Secondly, by the Spirit, we are free to serve. Free from sin, but a life of freedom is is, is a life of service. Now, all of a sudden, what's different about a believer's life? It's about other people. It's not about me, it's about the Lord, and it's about my life reflecting His holiness. But Paul also says, not only about the Lord, it's about others. Again, it has nothing to do with you. Leon Morris wrote, any man wrapped up in himself makes for a very small package. Amen. And so, to demonstrate yet again how our new life in Christ is not about us, Paul says in the last part of verse 13 do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, what? Say it out loud. Serve one another. Now, this is another of the great one another's of the Bible. All those wonderful one another. Love one another, serve one another bear one another's burdens, encourage one another, submit to one another, one another, one another, one another. Here he says, through love, serve one another. Let me just say this morning, we're never more like Jesus than when we serve one another. Jesus said about himself, son of man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Can I just say it? Y'all still with me? Say amen. If you're not serving others from a heart of love, You're not walking by the Spirit of God. That's one way to know. Am I serving other people with my life? That's one way to know. Because if the answer to that question is no, then I can can already tell you're not walking by the Spirit, at least not completely. Because this is how we know. Freedom in Christ is not self-serving. Freedom in Christ is self-sacrificing. Just like Christ for you. The word translated serve there, many of you who have studied the Bible for a while know that that's a verbal form of the noun doulos, doulos, bond slave, bond servant. And that's prompted many people to uh, remark that Christianity in many respects is an exchange of one kind of slavery for another. Everybody in the room this morning is a slave. You're either a slave to sin and self, a slave to the devil, or you're a slave to Jesus Christ. One of the two. We are bound to the enemy or we are bound to Christ. There is no middle ground. And when we're saved, we make an exchange of one kind of slavery for another And the paradox is when we become slaves of Jesus, it's only at that point that we become forever free. Freedom is found only in bondage to Christ. Because only in bondage to Christ are we liberated from the captivity of sin in order to become everything that God designed humanity to be in the Garden of Eden before the man and the woman went independently and rogue from God. It's a restoration. It's liberty. And it can only be found when we bind ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the one who would be most free is the one who mostly serves. In the kingdom of God, we're supposed to become like the household slaves who wash the dishes, take out the trash, vacuum the floors. I just turned a bunch of y'all off right there. Some of you men don't even like to help mama around the house. That's what we do. This is who we are. It's what we do in the kingdom of God. We stoop and we wash one another's feet. That's what it means to be like Christ. And so the question is, am I walking in the Spirit? Well, I think I might be. Well, one way to know is, are you serving others? Are you noticing needs? You see, living a life focused on others does two things. One, it demonstrates that you're actually walking by the Spirit but it's also preventative. It helps keep you from a life of self-indulgence because when you train yourself by the Spirit to notice what's happening in the lives of others, you're taking the eyes off yourself. And the problems that you tend to fixate on and moan about and groan about in your life, which most of the time, can I just say, are not really all that problematic. We call them problems they're really more splinters than anything else. Sometimes they're big. But we do a lot of moaning and groaning. I can't even go there this morning. I don't have time. But the question is, are you training your eyes to move away from yourself so that you don't live in pity? There's something wrong with a believer who constantly is in the midst of a pity party. No, let's just try to focus on the needs of others. See a need, meet a need. See a need, meet a need. Christians oftentimes can be really good about seeing a need, but then they just, I'm going to call one of the pastors. I'm going I'm to run it up the church flagpole. And here's the thing. We're here to help. We're here to resource. But here's the thing. If you live in the neighborhood with a single mother whose husband just left her, and he's got a little, she's got a little infant there, and she's not sure how she's going to meet the bills, maybe you should be the one to buy the formula for the next couple of months. I mean, again, we're happy to help, but you know the need. The Lord has laid the need on your heart. Maybe you should buy the groceries for the person. You don't have to announce it on a megaphone. Just buy four or five bags of groceries, leave them on the front porch, help the man out, help the person out. They can't fix the transmission. You've got a bulging bank account. Drive them to the transmission shop. Help them get the car fixed. They can't work if they can't get to work. Y'all tracking with me? See a need. Meet a need. This is one way you know you're walking in the Spirit of God. And again, we're here for the big stuff. We're here to help. we got a food pantry. We like to use it. We have a benevolence ministry. We love to use it, and we do use it. But some of that stuff really doesn't even need to make it here because there's stuff that you can do, stuff that I can do. And when we serve others like that, we are serving the Lord. Philip Ryken says, The person who is most free is the one empowered by the Spirit to love and serve others. That's when you're living in freedom, is when you make others more about your life Than even you yourself are. So by the Spirit, we're free from sin. By the Spirit, we are free to serve. And then finally, one mark of freedom is just this freedom to obey the commands of God. By the Spirit, we are free now to obey. Let me ask you all a question. Can a lost person obey the commands of this book, yes or no? Not a chance. I mean, you might do it like spottily, and you might hit the big stuff, But you can't consistently, listen, and you know why you won't do it if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ? Because you don't have a desire to obey God. I'm just saying the Spirit of God has got to be in you in order for you to even have the desire to do what God commands you to do. And so now, this is a mark of freedom. I now can obey. And again, because I'm bound to Christ as a bondservant, Now I have a desire to obey the commands of Christ in a way that I never even thought of before, in a way that I was never capable of doing before. Paul no sooner gets this idea of serving one another through love, through love. He barely gets that out of his mouth and he says in verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, Say it out loud together with me. Together, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that amazing? The whole law. That's kind of ironic that Paul would spend the first four chapters of Galatians kind of marginalizing the law, you know, pushing the law aside, minimizing the law, particularly as it related to salvation. But can I say this morning, one thing Paul was not doing in Galatians 1 through 4 was throwing out the law. Everybody with me? He makes it very clear, you can't be saved by keeping the law, but that doesn't mean that the law doesn't have a role in a born-again believer's life. Before Christ, you had no desire to even know what the law said, much less live by the law, nor could you live by the law. Here's the thing. Now that the Holy Spirit is in me, leading me, prompting me, now that I'm free, I have the capacity to say yes to the law and to actually do what the moral law of God commands me to do. So it's a totally false notion to believe that once we get saved, God just throws the Old Testament out. You making a huge mistake as a born-again believer, if you just only stay in the New Testament and never read the Old Testament, that's a major mistake. Now, that moral law is eternal. It it never goes away. And it can't save you. We've made that very clear. But here's the thing. The moral law of God now forms the boundaries for the believer's life. How do I know if I'm living in the will of God? Well, you've got to know what those commands say. All those thou shalt nots and do this and don't do that, and all of those still are apropos because they help you know whether you're living a holy life that best honors Christ. That's the kind of behavior that marks holiness as opposed to the desires of the flesh. And it's that kind of behavior that the Holy Spirit leads us to embrace and to do. That's the kind of behavior you consistently will reflect if, 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 You're walking by the Spirit of God. But obedience to the law always begins with the greatest commandment. I mean, Paul gives it an entire chapter. It's called the Love Chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. So there's no question that Paul elevates love as the highest of all Christian virtues. So love's kind of a first among equals because love is the greatest of of these, Paul says, it's the most excellent way. And as God has loved us, so we are also to what? Love one another. That's right. And if we fail to do that, we fail. You can't not not love others and walk in freedom because love is the heart of the freedom walk. No, as God has loved us, so we're to love one another. The Bible says that. Jesus said it, and Paul reflects it here. You can just sum up all of the Old Testament law in those two commands. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to know the essence, the foundation upon which God's moral law was built, that's it right there. Nothing more important than that. And so if you fail to love and serve others, this is why this is such a big deal. You fail to love and serve others, you fail to look like Christ, you fail to love and serve others, you fail to walk by the Spirit of God, it reflects an obvious self-centeredness that's destructive for the church over the long haul. That's what verse 15 is there to remind us of. What happens if believers in large enough numbers Fail to love and serve others? Well, verse 15 tells us what we're left with. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not what? Yeah, the three key words there, bite, devour, consumed. Y'all remember watching Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom? Man alive. It's rough out there in the world of nature. And see, what happens is if you fail to walk by the Spirit, you'll fail to love and serve others. And if you fail to love and serve others, and if that happens in enough numbers across the body of Christ, the people of God end up looking more like a pack of wild animals than than they look like a flock of redeemed sheep. They bite one another. That's what animals of prey do it starts with a bite, and then they devour one another. They rip the flesh. You ever wondered why that little pooch of yours at home, you give him a stuffed animal for Christmas, and the first thing he does is get it in its mouth and start shaking it around. It's trying to break its neck. That's what it's trying to do. And if it were real... Once that neck was broken, that animal of prey would what? Consume it. You see the progression? Oh, God's people can look like that sometime. Begins with a bite, continues with a tear, ends up in total consumption. Witness, gone. Gone. Can I just say, somebody is not walking in the Spirit of God. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret. It's not hard to tell. It's not hard to tell who's walking by the Spirit. It's not hard to tell who's not walking by the Spirit of God. It's a command. Because it's the only way to live free. It's the only way to become the person God Created you to become. What does a life of freedom look like? It's a life bound to Christ for the glory of Christ in the presence and power of the Spirit of Christ. By the Spirit, we're free from sin. By the Spirit, we're free to serve. By the Spirit, we're now free to obey. Have you all ever noticed how Christianity is often marked? by a life of don'ts. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. I'm just here to say this morning, rather than being defined by 500 different don'ts, a life of freedom should be marked just by one simple do. Can we just focus on the do? And what is the one do? Do. Walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Let's get the one thing right and watch how quickly we all start to bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ. This is his wonderful word and let all God's people say amen amen and amen.